Hey gang, uh, it's good to be back to this production of Breaking Change, which is a, uh, a Justin Searles joint. It's been a couple weeks since version 4, uh, because I got my Vision Pro and I've been playing with it and uh, haven't felt the same compulsion to go onto my internet radio program and, and talk about how I was looking forward to it. Because I was no longer looking forward to the future. I've been living in it. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that today. But, you know, version 5 is among us. And it's actually not Vision Pro related. Although it is still Apple-centric. Uh, the, the the breaking change of the episode, uh, I will title Regressive Web Apps. Uh, because Apple has decided to yoink the feature of, like, add to home screen for websites from the EU as a as partial response to the the Digital Markets Act over there. We'll talk more about that later. So yeah, it's been a couple of weeks. I've missed you. As 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 discussed, uh anyone who knows anything about podcasting knows that the most important thing is a consistent schedule. So that you get stuff out on a regular cadence and that the, the episodes always drop at the same time is really important to building an audience. Uh, but since I am committed to not only ignoring metrics, uh, but uh, uh, not wanting to build too big of an audience, I'm just kind of doing this whenever the fuck I want. So, and I'm also explicit. It, this is if you're, if you're new to the podcast, greetings. It is explicit and it is inconsistent. And I'm very explicit about that. So yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, I forgot to shave today, so I figured it'd be a good day to do a podcast uh, instead of a video. I've actually been thinking more and more about videos. Uh, uh, I forgot to put this entry in the news section, but OpenAI just demoed a new video text-to-video prompt generation thing called Sora, which is the Japanese word for sky. Uh, so you know a product is legit when they cargo cult a random Japanese noun and, and try to, you know, le- leverage the exoticism of, you know, Eastern Asian cultures to market a product as being futuristic. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, the first demo video in their reel is an incredible, absolutely incredible looking video of a woman walking through uh, an urban, very Tokyo-like city with a lot of neon, a lot of reflection. Uh, and boy... Uh, I am, you know what? I'm sorry, artists, but it, as soon as Sora comes out, I'm already a GPT plus customer. As soon as this thing's available, I assume it will be expensive because I got to imagine it takes a lot more energy to compute uh, a minute of video. Even, you know, it's, I, I think it's all muted. There's no audio to this video. Uh, I've been doing stock video heavy YouTubes for a while and boy, do I look forward to the idea of having uh, uh, AI generated stock videos because it turns out that a lot of the things I want stock videos for are extremely pedantically specific. And so, you know, I uh, there's only so many stock videos available of uh, people from diverse backgrounds throwing spaghetti at walls, for example, or of people spinning plates and having those plates be fine china as opposed to just plastic. You know, I, I think... I've spent so much time in story. This is not this podcast is not brought to you by Storyblocks, uh, which only I think and rather smartly only only advertises on YouTube, which is uh, famously a visual medium. Storyblocks is a a stock video site, and if it was a publicly traded one, uh, you know this is this does not constitute investment advice, but I would I would sell 
because I've got a feeling like on-demand stock video that is generated just for you that you then basically own the rights to. Yeah, it's going to absolutely annihilate that industry. I, hell, you know, if we're this far along, go check out OpenAI Sora if you're skeptical. But we're, we're this far down this path, not two years into the chat GPT era of humanity. Uh, you know, how long are we going to have commercial actors, right? Like how long are we going to have any of this sort of like short form video with non-famous people in it? And, you know, we'll all see how stuff shakes out in the courts, but it, it really is starting to feel like things are crossing some kind of threshold of utility and impressiveness that suddenly a lot of the copyrights holders of the world, you know, combined with like a lot of the, um, you know, a certain group of people on the left who, who think that there is a, an anti-labor component or, you know, and not unreasonably think that like, you know, labor suffers when a lot of people's labor can be replaced with a, you know, a GPU, an H100, uh, NVIDIA thing in a server rack. So the idea that like, you know, I, oh, what's, you know, the, I want, I want the predator meme of like the Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and the Carl Weathers, you know, bicep curls with, you know, Disney corporation and, you know, the AFL CIO, <laughs> you know, as unlikely allies in the fight against AI. Uh, so yeah, Sora, I can't wait to do some stock. Why, why did I mention that? Probably because I don't exactly have a face for video today. You know, actually, if you know me, when I say I forgot to shave today, that means I haven't shaved for like two and a half weeks and it feels scratchy because I don't think I've at no point in my life have I shaved every day. I've got tremendously sensitive skin. The idea that I could shave on a regular basis and not just be a bloody mess. I, you know, I'm told if you shave every single day, shave your face, your skin toughens up. But what if I like being, you know, having that baby smooth silky skin all over so i've been very 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 blessed to not have a job that required me to shave uh super regularly uh, except for when i was doing a lot of client work in my early 20s but I, I mostly just hell i barely did my laundry yeah i, I hmm. do i tell the story about how an executive at oppenheimer funds got so frustrated with my lack of ironing <laughs> my collared shirt every day at the embassy suites you know uh i wouldn't iron it and i just wear it and then he made a habit of walking up behind me and rubbing his hand down the small of my back as if to smooth out my collared shirt and uh you know the the fact that we were same gendered apparently heterosexual men apparently made that okay culturally but but damn man i don't rub, don't rub your hand against a subordinate's back, especially if there's like a weird power dynamic. Well, I guess subordinate implies that. Just don't do that. Uh, even if you have consent, other people might see it and it's kind of fucking weird in an office. So, forgot to shave today. Oh, uh, the other thing going on, power outages. Uh, we, I have lost power about a dozen times in the last two hours. Uh, and I got an email from our, our uh, utility saying that power will be restored in about three hours from now. So I thought, you know what? Great time to record a podcast with a lot of sensitive equipment. Uh, so so this episode was brought to you by UPS. Uh, not that one, the, the uninterrupted power supply from, oh shit, cyber power, I want to say, uh, providing me that sine wave energy 
uh, conditioning the down voltage that I experience every day here in Florida, uh, where, I, where everything is undervolted. I don't worry about, you know, typically most of the nation, you are concerned about power surges, right? You don't want a power surge to come in and, and nuke all your gear. Well, unfortunately in Florida, because, and I, I am told that central Florida in particular gets more lightning than any non-desert in the planet because we've got, you know, uh, coastal or bi-coastal and we've got really, really complex, you know, storm fronts on either side that can cause everything from drizzle to tornadoes and hurricanes in central Florida. Uh, I guess a tornado from the ocean is a hurricane. Hurricanes, you know, so we, because of that, these fronts are always going over and under each other and we have a lot of lightning and a lot of, you know, lightning damage. And so our power infrastructure is very frequently got, you know, assets going on and off constantly and this, this results in results in serial under voltage uh at, at all kinds of times and that means like you know lots of equipment that you plug in without a ups in front of it will just slowly die it, it no no big dramatic surge ever needs to happen and uh all it took was me seeing you know uh all the networking gear i bought a whole unify setup of you know ap's and everything all throughout the house and uh, almost all of it had to be replaced in the first six months and i was like you know what I'm going to get, I'm going to get a UPS. And honestly, I, I would love to have a whole home battery at some point. I want uh solar as well, but man, I, I would love a whole home battery. If I could just top that thing off and have that be the thing providing me, uh, you know, if this, if this were, were how they worked. So anyway, uh, this, this might be a short podcast, not because I don't have a lot to ramble about, but because uh, it might be literally cut short. Although then I guess the file wouldn't get saved. And so then you wouldn't be hearing this right now. So if you're hearing this, it means my power is still on. So the, you know, mystery solved. Uh, let's see, uh, you know, uh, life news. <laughs> so as I was hitting recording, record the record button. As I was hitting the record button, I got an email from somebody named Carlos at something called pod status. And it was just a copy paste report of some breaking change stats so if you are listening to this in argentina thank you for making me the number 14 rated podcast in the apple charts in the technology section i don't know why that is uh, i don't know why you're listening to me in argentina uh this is probably you know if you're a uh fluent english speaker uh you might be able to understand this uh, I feel like this is definitely some hard mode English practice, given how uh, my voice sounds and the words I choose. Uh, I am loquacious, but not exactly articulate. I do not enunciate. So sorry about that, Argentina. Uh, the, uh, I was also like, I think, number 30 in Norway. I don't know what, how I don't believe this for a second. Like uh, this has got to be based on some sort of like, well, you know, year over year numbers or something right like where this podcast didn't exist so it's got like an infinite percent increase in listenership i don't know so yes welcome to breaking change the number 14 technology podcast in argentina and one of the top 300 in the uk i don't know i don't this is why i don't track metrics because my brain is programmed to care about this shit and none of it matters it just i want to be saying what i want to be saying and i don't want to think about you know anything else uh i don't want to i don't want to taint the experience 
of just raw, uncut, terrible ideas with uh, a perverse incentive to talk about slightly different terrible ideas instead to try to goose numbers. Uh, as if, what, is it going to make me more money on this free podcast with no sponsors? No. All right. Uh, also in my life, uh, Becky of, 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 of being married to me fame. Uh, she is leading a retreat this weekend to celebrate the first year of her build with Becky strength resistance program. And so a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of those customers are, are mutual friends of ours. So they're all in town. And they're just over at a resort that's literally across the street from us, a brand new resort uh, called Evermore. That is a very impressive development. They also, um, as part of that, they, they built a Conrad Hotel. Uh, and that's the small part of the resort. Gigantic lagoon. It's crystal clear. It's pretty cool. And that means that for three nights, uh, I am home alone. And it's something that doesn't happen to me often. I have, uh, you know, this, whenever I th- think about the opportunity to be home alone, I think, wow, like, walk around in my underwear and 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 start drinking at 10 a.m. and play a bunch of video games and then of course in reality i just basically do exactly the same thing i do every day where i you know today i got up at 6 a.m. and started working on on some software that i was writing uh and yeah i worked out diligently like i always do uh i Fixed some problems, responded to some email, did some to-dos. Just a normal, just a normal day in paradise. And I guess that's a good thing, right? If you have unfettered freedom to do whatever the fuck you want, you still kind of just do the things that you always do. I, I, you know, that over time, for sure, the delta between what would Justin do on a completely free day with no expectations and and no one staring down his throat, and what would Justin, um, uh, you know, do anyway, even in the presence of all that has has narrowed dramatically and that would be a great news it would it would suggest typically that like somebody's life is way better now but in reality i think that all that just happened was like my career made me really fucking boring <laughs> i just like i through stockholm syndrome i i am now a dullard who 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 can't really enjoy himself or have fun before 5 p.m uh and then struggles to transition into being able to have fun after 5 p.m and then get sleepy at 9 p.m so that's success so yeah home alone for a few days uh i'm gonna enjoy my bathroom because we're getting a bathroom remodel soon uh our house is awesome uh the builder uh, of our home uh toll brothers is one of the best in my opinion based on zero knowledge other than talking to our realtor who knows more about this than me uh toll brothers is one of the best you know commercial or residential builders at scale throughout the u.s and uh yeah great house great construction quality great materials i got the whole like uh if you ever buy a new house ask the developer for a, a special document called the home home transaction summary or house transaction summary either way it's in the industry it's called the hts and i'm so glad i did this because what the HTS does as a PDF is it tells you every single blow by blow product that went into down to, in some cases, nails and screws and shit. But like I wanted to do this um, bathroom remodel or rather I was forced to because as good a builder as they are, they still subcontract the work to uh, you know other companies to do the building. And the company that did the shower installations forgot to put the little like skirt over the curb that you step out of the shower with so there's there's a pan that successfully keeps water out of the subflooring and then 
it's supposed to go over the curb to prevent, you know, water going over there. This is again, probably difficult to, I'm, I'm making motions with my hand as if that's helping. You can just imagine sort of like a, I'm making a Kirby hill motion. That's totally helpful to you. Anyway, the, the, the long story short, the pan was too, uh, too short and it lets water creep up that curve through the magic of osmosis. <laughs> Same thing that creates the possibility of life at a chemical level also results in water going up and onto just what apparently is some stapled plywood underneath some tile on this curb. And that's resulting in uh, leaking, uh, rotting. And, and you can tell the wood's rotting. You can tell things are getting wet because like the, the, it's coming straight through even the, the, uh, the baseboards, the trim, you know, brown discoloration. So there's water getting through the tile and shit. And that's no good. So I, you know, talked to a, a tile expert about it and he's like, all right, well, you know, for, for, for $7,000, I can just fix this, which will require me to retile the bottom third of your shower. And for a, a mere 3000 more, I could just retile your whole fucking bathroom, which you're going to need me to do because we're not going to be able to find this exact same tile product. <laughs> and I was like, all right, so I guess I'm doing, I'm retiling my whole bathroom. And then if you get to the point where you're like, well, if I'm retiling my whole bathroom, I guess we may as well take a second look at, you know, stuff like the shower fixtures, uh, the, the bathtub, how that's all arranged. And so, yeah, we're, we're doing kind of like a 50, 60% remodel, uh, reno, uh, uh, new bathtub, instead of having the bathtub be, um, a drop in into a like little artificial box, we're actually building a platform up and that platform after much discussion, originally the designer we hired had this cool kind of like, it looked almost like a, um, like a sauna wood, you know, like a, like a red cedar, uh, uh, platform that, that, that the tub would stand on. And then it had a ceiling equivalent too. So you kind of had this like boxy look like a shadow box inside of your bathroom. But it turns out that like wood is problematic <laughs> for, for getting really wet. Uh, and you, 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 we figured it all out. And what we ultimately landed on was the only product that we would trust from like a water. We lasting look, if you got to remodel your bathroom because stuff got wet, you're going to be, you're going to probably over index on waterproofing the next time around. So we're just going to like, there's a product called red guard that we're just going to have them slather at every single layer <laughs> under the tile to just make sure that there's no way water is getting anywhere. Uh, but if you live in Florida, you know, that is a Sisyphean task. There is water finds a way. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're going to do quartz for the platform because quartz can handle water. It's a man-made product. It looks very consistent. A lot of people say they want marble or they want natural stone, but then like they complain when the natural stone has pits in it and other, you know, imperfections. Uh, and so natural stone is probably not the best fit. So once we were deciding to go quartz, we actually drove an hour away to the stoneworks that, that, that has the half million dollar machine that carves the quartz out. It's going to have a cool rounded edge, right? I'm I've, this is the first time I've done a real serious renovation project. I'm juggling four different contractors. I made them a cute little spreadsheet. I got all the contact info. I got a whole schedule planned. So we went over to the Stoneworks and we started looking at quartz products. We took a few samples home. We looked at them and then we're like, you know what? Our current countertops are also quartz and none of them look great with this quartz. And it's a little bit busy, but like, man, it would be really nice if we just use one type of quartz for everything. Because just trying putting any of those samples down in the same room next to our existing quartz countertops 
made me think, should we just replace the countertops? And there's a, if you've ever had a a house project like this, there's this opportunity for scope creep constantly. And I really wanted to tamp that down. So we, um, I looked underneath the existing countertops, uh, from, from underneath, I opened up the cabinet and I like looked up from, from, up at them to, to look at the unfinished edge of the quartz and i saw the word cambria so i knew like okay so i know the make and then i remembered i got this home transaction summary so i loaded up the hts uh did a little search and i found that the uh, the exact uh quartz product down to the line and then the name and then the number and so the stoneworks guy was like yep we got it in stock here's here's a here's a sample and I, I pulled the sample and sure enough it's identical it's a dead ringer so so now we're gonna have one kind of quartz. Uh, you know a lot about this bathroom remodel uh, project now. I feel like I've really done a good job of summarizing the next month and a half of hell that awaits me uh, as this thing starts up. Uh, so if anything goes poorly, uh, it's your fault for not telling me um, what I could have done differently. So so that's, that's podcast at Searles.co. If you've got any advice on managing a bathroom remodel, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm going to try to like be here every day and be kind as I monitor closely every single action that every single person takes and provide them with critical feedback every 15 minutes and see how that goes for me. Cool. Uh, my friend, I've got some friends in Japan and they, they had a kid the same year that was Becky's first year going to Japan in 2009. And we go back and we visit every few years. I guess, no, I guess the kid was born in 2011. Yeah, 2011. And, and so we go back every few years, every couple of years, we visit with them. And he just turned 13. And I didn't, I didn't know what to say because when you're just texting with somebody, it's not like, you know, they're a kid. They, like, I, I, I didn't send them a gift overseas or anything like that. Once in a while, I'll log into my amazon.co.jp account and I'll send his dad like a gift that I buy through that. But I didn't bother this time. Birthdays aren't as big a deal in Japan, but still, you know, I wanted to at least say happy birthday. And I texted him and I realized that the significance of 13 in the U.S. or in in English is all about the linguistic aspect, right? You become a teenager. And what is a teenager? It's like when you go from 11 to 12 to now one of the teen numbers, and so I found myself in Japanese explaining to him, hey, 13, big deal. And I'm like, oh, wait, well, it's a big deal because, and then explaining, like, well, you know, because like 13 ends in teen in English. And so we call them teenagers. And so you're a teen now. And, and he just responded with arigato, uh, which is an extremely, extremely 13-year-old boy thing to reply to a wall of text. Uh, yeah. Can't wait to hang out with him. Uh, I'll probably see him on my way to Ruby Kaigi in Okinawa in may uh again if you're if you have any interest at all go into ruby kagi and you're nervous about it just shoot me an email at podcast at searles.co and i will uh reply to you and answer any questions you might have uh because because i think it's gonna be a lot of fun it's a great year for it all right uh let's see moving right on to follow up today uh yeah we've got a lot of vision pro stuff obviously i didn't i made a couple fact uh, uh errors uh errors of fact in my vision pro review, but I uh, don't remember them and I didn't write them down and I don't care very much. So moving to the next thing. Uh, one thing I saw is that like tracking 
it fails more often. And when it fails, it doesn't fail very gracefully. It, it fails when it, so first of all, when tracking fails, whatever that means. And of course, because Apple doesn't provide good error messages, no one really knows what it means. Uh, when tracking fails, everything goes black. Your music stops. Your programs are suspended. Some amount of time passes, and presumably tracking continues again. And then you, you are thrust back into an environment that was just like the environment you were in. Your music may continue. It may not. I've had both. And if you were screen sharing, that screen sharing session to your Mac may continue and it may not. And, and restarting a suspended or stopped screen sharing session is not always as simple as, you know, look at the thing or even go to control center and pick out the screen sharing Mac that you want, because very often I have found that that does not show up, which instead, you know, in my case, I'm, I'm across the room from my Mac studio often it requires me with my, you know, magic keyboard on my lap to hit control and then use my, the magic trackpad, the only supported pointing device. Uh, and and, and, and zippity doo dah hold the control, zoom in so I can see just the top right corner of the Mac screen from across the room, and then I click its control center, and then I click its mirror displays, and then I click the Apple Vision Pro, and then it, the Mac, will be starting the screen share onto the Vision Pro. And there's no way on the Vision Pro's OS to recover when like a bonjour fuck-up occurs, and they don't actually successfully advertise from the Mac to the Vision Pro that screen sharing is available. So that's a cool bug. Uh, so yeah, when tracking fails, it's just awful. And what I have found in the last couple of weeks of using the vision pro in earnest is that every time I take like a sip of water, if it's dark and the, and my cup obscures the bottom sensors, remember with vision pro, the many of the sensors and cameras are pointed straight down because they're designed to look at your hands. They want to track your hand movement and your hands should be at your side in a most you know natural posture. Yeah, so so anyway, uh, the tracking very often just gives up, and and uh, as I'm taking a sip, and I didn't catch this at first, so I like take a sip, and then tracking would fail, and then I'd set up screen sharing again, and then I'd take another sip, and then tracking would fail, and and then after the third or fourth time, I realized, oh, I just need to like not not refresh myself while I'm using my computer very well. Uh, also, I had a hard problem, and I was working on a hard problem, and I put my put my hand on my chin contemplatively as if to coax out a solution and that also caused tracking to fail and i will say it did not co coax out a uh, a solution let's see other vision pro stuff that uh picked up since the review um one thing i've noticed i i, I failed in the first day or two to think oh i should take a spatial video on my phone and then play it on the vision pro i learned a couple things right away one if you iMessage a spatial video, the spatialness gets lost. <laughs> Whatever the sidecar data is that makes it spatial, uh, that doesn't uh, translate. Even if you click the little magical save button in the iMessage conversation and then load that up from the library, it, it, it's not a spatial video. So there's currently, it's not clear to me if there's any way to share one outside the context of a shared family library, like a iCloud family library. So I I I was I've only been able to take my own. I took one of Becky. Uh, we had a real uh, unseasonably warm day. We went to the pool. I I, I our, 
the the we have a pool near us it's got a lot of really cool trees and, and a lot of good foreground background stuff so i thought oh i'll take a video of becky by the pool kind of like showing hey here, here we are it's a pool day and it was a simple little shot uh, looked up and down a tree looked looked left looked right uh which of course all of these operations are called pan you know pan left pan right pan forward pan back pan up and down uh there's a there's a meme about that but of course i forget the name of all of these operations uh because i'm not a real camera person i am just an internet man uh yeah so took a spatial video and i went and i watched it and i finally could understand some of the excitement that other reviewers had about the emotional resonance of a spatial video that you've taken because it is different it feels even though the um distance between the eyes isn't quite right so there's a really shallow 3d effect seeing somebody that you care about pop out a little bit and have like a little bit of depth your brain does stuff that it doesn't do when it's looking at a completely flat image and it it feels realer and as soon as i was having that sensation i was like wow this is really neat i should take more spatial video I saw there was an immersive icon. The, the immersive icon that Apple has selected looks like a, um, uh, a rectangle with both sides made to be concave, like a squeeze is happening uh, on, a, on a rectangle vertically. And I don't know why that's the logo, but I, I, I went, I looked at it and I pinchy pinched. And it, instead of going to like a more dramatic, it's just a box right in front of you when you're watching the, the, the spatial video, instead of becoming just a, a, a truly immersive 180 video, because of course it couldn't have done that. You go into, have you ever seen the movie, look who's talking now, <laughs> like Christie alley and like the, the baby that talks movie. There's a scene I want to say where the baby is going through the birth canal and there's this really gross effect of like smearing like light at all the edges, right? Uh, 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 where you can see like a pinprick, a small amount of visual data that was accurate in the middle. And then you're kind of going through that, uh, you know, another example from film is, uh, the, uh, the, the, the streaming lights and, and the way that they all smear in 2001 as, Weirdly, I guess the reverse birth canal of becoming the space baby uh, uh, for David. Uh, spoiler alert for 2001. Yeah, it, that's what you get. You get the exact same fucking rectangle, but instead of seeing it in the context of the current environment that you're in, you just see a lot of smeared uh, colors around you. I don't know why they thought that was... I, I have a feeling that's going to get tweaked. Uh, but anyway, yeah, spatial videos, very impressive, uh, travel mode. I, I used a couple times cause I was in, I was traveling, I was in, in transit. Uh, and when you turn on travel mode, what happens is you realize just how good the, in a stationary environment, the vision pro is at placing all the windows in a static way, gluing them to their current locations such that all of the minor head bobs that you do and as you move around like their constancy of that location is really good as soon as you go into uh a uh, uh, travel mode though not head movements it's not like every time you move your head everything shifts around and it's like suddenly every single thing is just kind of head relative 
but rather if there's a, if you're in a car or if you're in a plane and it bumps, if it's like a bumpy ride, all of those videos will shake because I think what happens is that they've got like a point of reference that is partially based on depth and vision data. And so if stuff starts shaking and moving around, the, the windows shake and move around. And that's, if you're used to the static version, which I definitely prefer, having all of your spatial video, spatial video or spatial windows, like kind of like bounce around and, and uh, like with turbulence, not, not super fun. <laughs> so, uh, I, it can't be stated enough how much vision pro is really designed for people to be standing or sitting in one place. And if you're on a plane for that plane to not experience too much turbulence, uh, it's, it's pretty limited. Um, Supposed to, I, I, I mentioned planes. I, I, I said I was going to go on a plane uh, and I did go on a plane and now I've gotten off the plane and I've got stories to tell. Uh, let's see. Flying there, I was in economy. I was towards the back of the plane and I, having had the experience of having a, an iPhone in 2007 walking up and down a plane, I did not want to re- recreate the experience of having a bunch of randos as I walked down the aisle ask me about it. So I... um. <laughs> Although it would have been a bold move, I did not walk down the 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 plane aisle with the Vision Pro step, strapped to my face. Uh, instead, I waited actually to take it out of my bag until well after takeoff. Uh, uh, after the you know the people start moving about the cabin, at that moment I took it out of the bag. I tried to as inconspicuously as possible put this gigantic helmet on my head, <laughs> uh, and then I started you know watching some videos. Uh, cause I had airplane mode on, it was, I was able to eke out like three hours of battery life, which isn't bad for a two hour battery. I had some downloaded, I watched, uh, hello tomorrow, which is actually a pretty fun show retro future vibe. If you like fallouts kind of retro future motif, hello tomorrow is pretty cool. Uh, watched like five episodes of that on the plane. Uh, I did so mostly in the not like not in an immersive environment, but rather just in my real space because I was curious about how many people might be staring at me. So so as as much as Apple markets, hey, you can shut out the entire plane around you. The the degree to which you feel vulnerable, <laughs> especially in an aisle seat, and I was in an exit row, so like anybody could have gone and tickled me. You know, I I didn't. I don't know why I thought like they'd come and tickle me. Like that would be the thing. Uh, maybe it's because I was thinking about that guy rubbing his hand on my back when I was in my early twenties at work, um, to, to, to smooth out my shirt. Anyway, no one tickled me. And, and if they had tried to tickle me, I would have seen them coming because I didn't want to go into an immersive mode. Cause for whatever reason, it made me feel uncomfortable. Uh, and I did indeed see a lot of people walk by cock their head and think that I was a little bit of a creeper. And because, and I did not think this through when I booked the seat, I was in one of those exit rows opposite jump seats that the flight attendants sit in. And I had a, a flight attendant who seemed to not have a whole lot of responsibilities on this particular flight relative to all the other flight attendants. You know, I don't want to throw, throw Luke under the bus here, but he was sitting in the jump seat most of the flight and looking at me a lot. Uh, you know, I, I would, I would flick the video out of the way every now and then be like, yep, Luke's still seemingly just looking at me. And at one point I took the headset off, you know, to go to the restroom. And then he had a whole lot of questions. And a lot of his questions were, could you see me? 
And how much does it cost? Of course, you got how, how much it costs. So like, what's it look like? And you explain, like, you know, just throw videos around. You got a big video. You got, you're watching a TV and you got I'm saying video in, in place of window today for some reason. But, you know, got windows. You, I had a big TV screen. I was watching a TV show. He's like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. And he was very excited and excitable. And uh, then uh, the woman two seats to my right asked if it was worth it. And not to say like I was trying to shut down the conversation or whatever, but I was like, I don't know, man, I can't answer the question of is it, is it worth it? I don't know. And, uh, as I was leaving the plane, you know, not, a, not a lot else happened. I was just watching TV and it was a, you know, pretty dark flight, not a lot of action on this flight. No one else really seemed very interested. Uh, pro tip about life. Other people are more worried about themselves then they're, then they're worried about you. And so if you've got a preoccupation that other people are thinking about you all the time, uh, rest assured, they're probably not. So I, uh, yeah, flight was successful. And on my way up, people started talking about it again. And like, oh yeah, he had the Apple thing. He had the vision thing. And they, the, they were all like, oh, I want that. I want that. And the, you know, another flight attendant says, oh, I was thinking about getting that. And how much does it cost? And I said, $3,500. He's like, I'm no longer thinking about buying that. I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, somebody's like, yeah, this, somebody made a snark. I think it was the woman who'd, who'd been on my right. She made a snarky comment that like, I, I blew, I blew so much money on this. And I was like, well, you know, it's cheaper than a first class ticket. Uh, and, and I think that's really the calculus is, is not, is this worth $3,500, but does it make economy that much less bad that you, if you would otherwise consider paying for a first class or a business class seat? make you feel comfortable buying economy instead because like the cost savings are huge especially if you travel internationally a lot I, I know a few people who only you know they 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 spend a large percentage of their overall overall income and wealth on first class tickets because they are just very uncomfortable in economy and that's a choice that they make but it, ever since i saw how expensive the vision pro was and how potentially effective it is at shutting the world out and entertaining you you know, uh, certainly much better. The, the guy next to me on the flight, incidentally, had a, you know, a normal size smartphone that he'd kind of couched up behind a glove that he was watching kind of at a cockeyed angle on his uh, uh, little table tray. And the, the, you know, the other person was on an iPad. You know, I watched people watch videos and like all these tiny little screens, right? The fact that I got to see what I was watching in something that took up all my, my, almost my entire field of view with great audio quality and, you know, great lighting, light reproduction and not having to think about or hear the things around me, you know, that has a certain value. So if this takes you from, let's say I spend a grand total of $5,000 a year in business class seats and upgrades, and now I don't do that, then the vision pro pays for itself. And this is not, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, middle America necessarily, but there is if, if among people who travel a lot, there are a lot of people who spend either a lot of dollars or a lot of miles in, in higher tiered seats. Uh, even just premium economy now has, has been a huge moneymaker for all the airlines. Uh, you know, do your own calculation. That's why I couldn't answer the question of if, is it worth it? Uh, on the way back, incidentally, I got a first class upgrade, <laughs> 
So I, 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 instead of being in the back of the plane, I was in the front of the plane and the reactions there were markedly different. Uh, this is, uh, you know, maybe not surprising, but like, you know, the, the, the person seated on my left, she already knew what it was and she was, you know, not considering buying it for herself, but she was like conversant in it. And even the flight, if you've ever flown in first, you know, the, this will probably not shock you, but the, the, uh, it's a cushier gig from the flight attendant's perspective too. And so they're, they're typically more experienced and, and, and uh, themselves more conversant in, I don't mean to make this sound so classist, but like for a device that like nobody needs, that's this expensive. There's definitely a class element to one's use of it in public. Uh, even the flight attendant was like very aware of it, you know, it had been out for two days and, and, you know, had a normal conversation instead of treating it like just like this mystery mystery object from the future uh yeah but you know i don't know people it takes a lot post 2016 and 2020 i think it just takes a lot to really shock anybody anymore i think ai at all the world is changing not necessarily for the better and not necessarily in the flying cars kind of way that we expected it to but there is a volatility to innovation over the last five to 10 years that there really wasn't in the 2000s. Like when the smartphone hit, it felt like a way bigger, different thing. And yeah, no one's, no one's really impressed by your headset. So wear it or don't, I don't know. Uh, I did wear it at a coffee shop. I, I chose a seat that faced a wall. Um, so if that's shame, I don't know. I, I, I didn't want to be half staring through people uh, i'll get over that and uh you know probably start wearing it around town more i'd also mentioned uh you know that the two head straps it comes with are really bad and they are indeed really bad uh i found uh actually no mark miranda mark uh former colleague ours uh he emailed me somebody was selling on etsy the 3d printable little uh, adapter straps for the bobo m2 plus headset or rather the strap and and bobo vr creates a whole bunch of custom straps for the the meta quest line of products and they are halo style straps that put a lot of the the weight evenly distributed on the top of the head the crown of the head and they're super comfortable and i can wear them all day long with my quest 2 so when i got these little three dollar four dollar uh stl files to 3d print them uh, my brother very kindly used a very high-end filament uh uh in his fancy 3d printer to to make some white ones for me they look great they feel great they click right in they hold just fine the strap is unbelievably comfortable compared to the out-of-the-box experience and I, in the process, learned why Apple isn't doing a more complex and comfortable strap. It's because it makes you look even more like a doofus. You know, the, the, it's big. It, it's a, it's a complex, you know, it's, if you've ever like, like seen somebody walking around in traction, like with their like head stabilized and there's all these different little like kind of points of adjustment there, there's more, it's, it's a fiddlier thing. It is larger. It is bulkier. There's more plastic components uh it you could not imagine it in an apple ad and it's also your design aesthetic aside you're definitely making a big trade-off when you wear it um the, the this kind of strap uh in the portability space like i could never have fit that strap in the backpack that i was traveling with but the dual loop strap was no problem at all so 
that's uh, my quick review is if you're going to be mostly using this thing from home and you're not traveling, the $30 for the strap and the $4 or $12 if you, if you want this fellow to print them for you. Uh, and it's on my blog. I'll, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, the best deal. I mean, you just spent $3,500 on a Vision Pro. You can afford an extra. Well, maybe you can't. If you spent your last $3,500 on a Vision Pro, I hope you return it. Uh, but if you've got 30 more in the bank, you should definitely be buying this. Uh, yeah, so that one uh, has been a total game changer. And I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I've been, I've been wearing... I, I don't think I have programmed at a computer for more than 10 minutes without being in the Vision Pro in the last two weeks. And I, I've been programming a lot. So whenever I program... You know, I've got the headset on, I'm screen sharing to a Mac and I am fully immersed and I'm getting more done than usual, quite a lot more done. So that's been, you know, mission accomplished. If you listen to to me complain about this thing for two hours and you were like, wow, he really hates this headset. And then I said, actually, this is an endorsement. Uh, If it's a $3,500 device that causes you to buy a couple fewer business class upgrades, it's worth it. And if it causes you to uh, not uh, buy another fancy monitor for your computer, it's probably close to worth it. But if it makes you marginally more productive at your task, uh, like, you know, faster feedback, better focus, you know, more creative, whatever it is, if it makes you marginally more productive at your primary, you know, vocation, now we're talking not about cost control. We're talking about like, what's the upside of using this? And for me, the upside is, I might have not only written the code I was going to write faster, but it might be better because the thoughts that I were having were purer and there was a more direct line of productivity as I was thinking more creatively because I was fully immersed in the problem for no other reason than I was having looking at a big old screen in front of me. And that, not to say it's priceless, but it's valuable for sure. And, you know, I got a taste of that using these X-Real glasses that are just a simple 1080p postage stamp, you know, like a sunglasses form factor. That shuts out the world enough that I was also more productive there. But this is 4X. This is significantly more immersion. And, uh, yeah. So if you just want to use this thing for, for screen sharing and the occasional airplane ride to watch some videos in, it is lights out the best way to do that available today. No other headset can do this. No other, no other headset comes close to having the combination of this experience connecting to a Macintosh computer and this visual fidelity between resolution latency and so forth. So that is the Justin Searles highly qualified seal of approval for the vision pro for that, for that use case. And I couldn't be happier. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that I bought one. Now that I've outed myself uh, or or explained this product as simply being a fancy screen sharing device, uh, a couple other notes about screen sharing that I have here. One is that I was very impressed to find, uh, and I was worried about this, that because there's no direct like hardwire way to screen share short of buying like a $300 developer strap and still it's not quite sure how much of that communication is happening via the strap. Because this is all wireless and it's all happening over Wi-Fi, I had a fear that if I went to a hotel or if I went to a uh, coffee shop or I was on some Wi-Fi that I didn't control, that 
the two devices, you know, the Mac and the Vision Pro would have to be on the same Wi-Fi network and both connected and pass whatever captive, you know, portal uh, might, might, you know, to log in. It turns out that the screen sharing works even if neither device is connected to a Wi-Fi network. All it requires is that Wi-Fi be in the Wi-Fi NIC, the, the actual, like, you know, you don't have Wi-Fi disabled. You disable the Wi-Fi radio in either device, of course, it fails, but it's all happening peer-to-peer which is really important because I'm sure that that is helping with latency. So that was great to see that that's the way that that feature was engineered. Again, that's something that, you know, no other device maker could have done. It's an Apple exclusive, uh, uh, surely. Uh, Additionally, I've heard and I've seen on the internets, a lot of people complain that the screen sharing is fuzzy, you know, insufficiently sharp. I've got pretty good eyesight. Uh, I'm looking at a 6K monitor right now, and indeed the text is very, very sharp. And indeed, I, I as I as I look at it and as I think through it, I would concede that when you're in screen sharing mode on the Vision Pro, it is less sharp. But I don't know. Like I'm I'm a maybe it's because I, I love jacking up font sizes to the absolute largest possible size that can fit 80 characters of width when I'm programming or the largest size to fill a full screened, you know, Safari window. So I, if you work in, in 10 point font and that's just how you choose to inflict eye strain upon yourself, then yeah, maybe it's too blurry, but at least for my style where I'm just always trying to maximize font size relative to whatever the viewport is for whatever I'm working in, this thing is not blurry. It's a very, very crisp, image uh and it's you know there's a lot of uh downscaling and upscaling that's happening between uh the like the 5k simulated screen getting cut in half and then processed and compressed and then that goes over the wire and then that's upscaled on the vision pro side and then of course there's no you know one-to-one mapping of pixels to where somebody's looking and so it's constantly like all this scaling and transform is happening and i would assume a lot of people are either experiencing or ascribing with the fuzziness they see to all of that upscaling and downscaling. I don't know. I, you know, maybe, you know, there, hmm, there's a, uh, uh, VAC. Oh, what does that sound for? Vergence and something convergence. Ah, I forget the, the, uh, or vergence and something conflict. Anyway. Yes. There's like the distance that your eyeball is focused on, and because the lenses on the Vision Pro are at our fixed focal length, and we believe that to be about 1.3 meters, that is the default distance that windows appear when you plot them on. So there's no conflict between the logical sizing and closeness to your face and the physical fixed lens focus. But as soon as you drag the window forward or backwards, it is now in conflict. It is like what your eyeball is experiencing as a fixed lens focus focal length at 1.3 meters is now actually experiencing the thing much closer and much further. And that is known to cause eye strain and even nausea. So when I go into a screen sharing session, if the sizing isn't right, I will resize it. I will look to the bottom right corner and I will make the thing bigger or smaller, but I in general will not pull the screen closer or further away from me because I want to keep it at roughly that that distance so that it's not in conflict with the 1.3 fixed meter fixed uh, uh, focal distance. So maybe that's why it's working for me, but I, I can't really complain. Uh, 
you know, over the course of the last two weeks, I've only felt better about the Vision Pro. We're at 1.0.3. It's had a couple bug fix updates. I don't know if I've experienced any bug fixes. I think actually what's more likely is that the things that don't work, I have learned to avoid. I basically use no Vision Pro apps. (laughs) And when you don't use any of its apps, you run into fewer bugs in those apps. And so the only app that I use apart from screen sharing so far is really music. I'll, I'll, I'll kick open the music app. I'll pick something out. And then I'll, uh, again, the only time, you know, iTunes has had the mini player forever. It was like a cute little feature when we didn't have a lot of screen real estate and you, you just would, would make it like small in the corner, but because I'm always full screen all, all the time on, on, on my Mac and I'll just command tab to it or alt tab to it in windows when I wanted to see iTunes, I never use that feature. In fact, I'd always get confused because because it was the only time in, in the operating system where you actually had to click the little traffic like X to get out of the mini player, but not to close the application. I always hated the mini player for 20 years plus. I hated that mini player. I love the mini player in the Vision Pro because I can just get the album artwork. I can fling it just to the upper left of the screen sharing session. And uh, I can just look at it and pinch and pause. You know, as soon as you look at it and you pinch, you've selected the the, the, the playback controls come up and then pinch again and, and you pause or play. I love, love music uh, because I only have to click it, click four times to get, get going and, and, and have some music playing. I use no other apps and my experience with those apps is no better than it was when I reviewed the thing. They're just clunky iPad apps with insufficiently precise control. Uh, things is indeed a really good app. I've been using things, uh, uh, a little bit, but honestly the universal control feature that is supposed to work when you are screen sharing or when you have a Mac in proximity, uh, it is not very good. It is very inconsistent. Sometimes the pointer will show up and sometimes it won't. Sometimes the keyboard will type into vision, vision OS applications, and sometimes it won't. So I've given up on that too. Uh, typing in the vision pro is still a headache because the, even if you have a hardware keyboard via universal control or directly connected, who knows? It's a total dice roll, whether or not a virtual keyboard is going to pop up right between you and the thing that you're typing into obscuring your view of the thing that you're typing into. It's a nonsense. But if you just use this thing again, as a thing to watch videos or as a thing to screen share as a Mac, they nailed it. Unfortunately, they built an entire operating system that has nothing to do with those two things. And that thing isn't very good yet. Uh, maybe it'll be good sometime, but like for me and for my purposes, uh, this is worth the price of admission just to get those two features. I, I think that, and I think that's where a lot of people are probably going to come down on this is that because Apple advertises it as the next era of computing and because it can do a lot of other things and because it does those things poorly, people are devaluing in their minds how much is the video and screen sharing really worth? But if you really focus on just those two things, I don't know. I see people spend a lot more money on a lot stupider stuff. Uh, uh, I, I, can, I can easily make the case that this is better than my $3,000 Dell 6K monitor was or easily make the case that uh, springing for the brand new OLED iPad that's going to come out and probably cost close to $2,000 just to be able to watch videos on, on a plane. Uh, you know, this replaces products that don't do these jobs as well. So I don't know, but that's most of my vision pro stuff. You know, I, whenever, whenever anyone asks me for programming advice, I tell them, I'm sorry, but I only can tell you like the 10 year plus 
way of learning how to program of just like long suffering and trying really hard and being frustrated a lot. And you just have to power through and then you come out the other end and hopefully that's a good place. I kind of have the same advice for vision pro, you know, if you, if you, if you try to use this, I would just force myself to use it all day, every day. And I, I presumed the conclusion that of course this was going to be the best place for me to do this, uh, to, to, to do my work every day. And, and I, and it forced me to get over all of the little pain points and it worked great. Uh, so, you know, I don't know, I don't know what that means for you, but, uh, forcing myself through it, uh, really helped. And in fact, it kind of became, uh, like a muscle memory. So, so just like I would avoid a lot of apps, my, I struggled at first to pull up control center because it requires you to look up with your eyes without moving your head up and then pinching and then opening control center with, you know, looking at that little bot uh, dot. And then, you know, for me, I'm always going to the screen sharing thing. I've, I've reduced the amount of friction in the operating system by my eyes, just knowing exactly where to be looking through rote repetition. Uh, and so then I know where to look, click, look, click, look, click, when to click, when to look. And just because I've done that a lot now, and I've had a lot of practice at that, I'm experiencing fewer misclicks, but it's not because the system's gotten better. It's because I've kind of carved out a cow path of muscle memory. Uh, that doesn't make it a better product, but it makes it a better experience for me. And it, it resembles too the, the way that I've sort of um, padded the walls of my Mac and my, my terminal, my developer experience and, and, uh, carved out like a, a sort of a subset of features that I use, uh, and a set of features that I entirely avoid. And everyone does this, whether they're cognizant and thoughtful about it or not. You know, I was just telling Becky the other day, my parents have complained about their computers a lot less in recent years. And when I, when they came down to visit in December, I looked at, uh, you know, how my mom was using her phone, how my dad was using, using his Mac and realized that there are huge swaths of the operating system that they both are just dutifully avoiding that they used to touch and used to cause problems. And now they just know better. So, so I guess that's, that's, that's where I land vision, vision pro. My productivity is way up. I'm happy with it. I'm going to keep it. I'm, I'm going to look forward to the the vision os2 beta i'm sure in june and i'm probably going to buy every single version of these things uh because i'm a sucker but also because it's valuable it's doing its job uh i did have one vision pro idea which at an operating system level since apple's not eager to adopt uh a, a what what mark zuckerberg has called a high resolution controller meaning like a device that you can kind of point and and click with the same sort of specificity of a mouse I was wondering whether or not it'd be neat for Apple to have either an accessibility mode or an alternate pointing mode where you just made a finger gun and you pointed your finger gun, you know, you know what I mean, right? Like where you take the, your first three fingers and kind of like coil them up into a fist and then you point with your, your index or your pointer finger at something. And I suspect that the hand tracking is good enough that, you know, if it's off, you could, it would be consistently off. And so you could calibrate and get used to just pointing at stuff with a pointer finger. And if you have your thumb cocked up like a little finger gun, then you could just, the click action would just be bending your, 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 your thumb right forward. Like, 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 uh, like you're cocking the gun. And as soon as I had that idea, I started playing around with it. Just like in pantomime mode, I'm doing it now. I'm pointing at my screen and clicking on stuff. I, I, 
I'm not sure that that's a worse way to control this than the retina interface of, 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 of looking at and, and, and trying to coordinate one, one, your eye muscles and your hand muscles, which were not, we were not raised in the wild to be able to do, uh, in the same way. Uh, you know, that when, when we talk about eye hand, eye coordinate hand, eye coordination, we're not really describing this indirect system that the vision pro is trying to foist on us. So instead I'm thinking about finger gun mode and how neat that would be if they implemented that. Um, only other follow-up today is, is not vision pro related, but it's, it's back to the title of this, 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 uh, episode's breaking change of regressive web apps. So Apple has taken away progressive web apps. If it, if the operating system determines you to be in the EU, uh, if you're in the EU, you will be able to install and run uh, uh, third-party browsers who have implemented their own rendering engines as, a, as an alternative to WebKit. So in the case of Chrome, that is Chromium, um, you know, powered by the Blink renderer. In the case of Firefox, that's whatever their thing is, Servo maybe, uh, written in Rust. And they'll be able to deliver that experience to you only if you're in the EU. But, and a huge but here, if you were able to add to home screen a URL that maybe you were in the Chrome browser and you added to the home screen, then that means that when you clicked it, it would create a progressive web application that effectively was controlled by Chrome. And now Apple is completely bypassed and it has access to the hardware that, you know, uh, uh, only an app would otherwise have like the camera and so forth. So, or the accelerometer, and other little features. And I suspect, ambient light sensor, I think, I suspect that Apple wants control and they don't want to give it away for nothing. Uh, and and they probably have a valid fear that Google could take the Chrome store and just start selling apps as progressive web apps that you could then install into your you know uh, home screen in the EU. And they probably don't want that to happen. And that wasn't specified as something that they had to allow to happen in the DMA. So, you know, and, and would certainly skirt their core technology fee of 50 cents per, per annual install user. So they just turned off progressive web apps. You can't add, you can't even, I don't think you can even add links to home screen. Maybe you can add the link to home screen. And it just doesn't go into progressive web app mode. That's probably what it's doing. It's probably, I think the bookmark is probably still there. I haven't played with this myself. Cause like that would be pretty disruptive. I think what, what we really mean is probably the meta tag that's that, that, that flips the browser into PWA mode. Uh, you know, if you know, you know, that just isn't going to work in the EU anymore. Uh, predictably people are mad. I don't know, man, like, <laughs> If you support the DMA and if you're excited about Apple having uh, finally forced to loosen up and respond to regulators by opening up their platform, then then the EU should have passed a law that actually forced that, but they didn't. <laughs> Instead, they they wrote a very long piece of legislation that tried to specify incredibly detailed instructions about you know the these concepts that only gave Apple more rope with which to hang the EU's bureaucrats with like, and if they go back to the table and they design even more legislation to, to, to even more specifically mandate the things that Apple 
needs to do. Apple will just find an even more creative policy response and technology response that sidesteps all of it. Uh, if, if what they want is, Hey, Apple, you got to like remove all your, you know, DRM or like signing, you know, like basically like kill all of the, you know, privileged ability for you to put software on the system and let anyone just do anything and make it a total free for all come what may from a privacy and security perspective, regardless of whether that's good for people or not, this could, this whole law could be one page long and then it would be up to Apple whether or not they wanted to continue to sell iPhones in the, in, in the EU. But the truth is they seriously might pull out because if, if you actually pass that law, I think the most likely thing is unless you could be, if you're smaller than China or the U S and you pass that law, it's probably in Apple's best interest to just say goodbye to your continent (laughs) because it would just encourage other countries to sign similar pieces of legislation. And that risk then would be so great to their, to their bottom line, they wouldn't do it. And so instead we wind up in like in so many things in this world, this kind of shitty middle ground where we try to have it both ways on both sides. And that just results in both sides playing each other. And then the, 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 the actual users lose in this case that it's regressive. You, you lose your, your progressive web applications. So sorry about that to the EU. Uh, bummer. <laughs> Thus concludes follow up. It's pun time. Let's go get Aaron's pun out. Every time on the podcast, Aaron Patterson designs a pun just for you, just for your consumption. And I texted him at 9.38 a.m. Eastern time this morning that I need a pun about progressive web apps. And he uh, he replied, why am I texting you puns before 7 a.m. on Saturday? Uh, <laughs> which he did. He did text a pun. So that's on him. I, I replied with the... Uh, 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 the dad from Rugrats meme where he's like making pudding and sh- and his wife asked, why are you making pudding at 2 a.m.? And he's because I've lost control of my life. So that's why. All right, here we go. Here's the pun. Invisible ink getting brushed away. Aren't progressive web apps just liberal media? Aren't progressive web apps just liberal media? It's a play on words because progressive is what we call liberal now for the most part it's a more culturally acceptable uh alternate phrase so aren't progressive i should just copy and paste this instead I'm, i've got the spreadsheet open copy paste does not work when you're selecting text on a invisible ink style iMessage. that's the real crime somebody get apple on that where where's elizabeth warren get text selection working correctly please (laughs) in iMessage that's as a constituent of america that's what i want all right so that's february 17th 2024 this is version five of the podcast aren't progressive web apps just liberal media where does this rank hmm i think this is gonna fall in third place this is not as good as i wonder what tapas restaurants have to say about this eu app store ruling which is growing on me like a like a fine wine uh its complexity is only uh uh, smoothing its flavor with age uh and but it's just better 
then I'm excited about Vision Pro. I heard spatial computing will be out of this world, which, if anything, is too simple. So congratulations. This is the new number three all-time pun that Aaron has left for us to, to enjoy, to luxuriate in. Thank you, Aaron. Well, on to the news. We go forth bravely into the segment that actually, you know, we don't have a lot more to cover today. A lot of follow-up, but just a few notes. Uh, A fella, (laughs) I don't know why that's my default descriptor, Uh, a human person named Luke Miani, he, he made a video titled Using a Headless MacBook with Vision Pro. Uh, where he referred to the operation that he committed uh, against God and Tim Apple of beheading a a, uh, 13-inch M2 MacBook Air. Uh, He went through, you know, you take the screws out of the bottom, you you take off all these little metal shields, and he uh, basically disassembled it, uh, took the hinge out, and then put the speaker assembly back on, uh, and, and what you end up with is just a slab. There's no, there's no monitor there anymore. It's just the bottom slab. The battery's there, the computer's there, the keyboard's there, the trackpad's there. And when you look at it with a Vision Pro, uh, the connect button still shows up, uh, you know, where the top of the monitor used to be. And uh, yeah, it works great. And I, I've since learned that, uh, you know, voiceover will kick on if you hold uh, something down the right way when you're booting initially, you know, so you can type in the password correctly. And if you do that much that, and, and you just connect with a Vision Pro from there, I, 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 that sounds kind of exactly like what I want. It so much sounds like what I want that have I thought about, you know, sacrificing uh, my own M2 MacBook Air at the altar of this exact life hack? just to make my bag a little bit lighter. I have thought about that. I've thought about it a lot. And I, if I, if I didn't have such shaky hands and such a, uh, skilled way of losing screws, no matter how many bowls and cups I put in front of myself to store screws, I would, I might do it. I, maybe when this MacBook air is out of warranty or a new ones come out, I might, I might actually try this because I don't imagine that Apple's going to release uh, either a 12-inch MacBook Pro, which is the thing that I really want, or a device that is designed just to be uh, a headless Mac to be paired with a Vision Pro, at least no time soon, no time in the next five years. Uh, I would love to be wrong. But anyway, that was a very creative mod and a smart idea, executed really well. So so check that video out. I'll, I'll link to it. There is a an, another item here about Ruby, the programming language that I often speak about. Uh, you can type into your browser right now, runruby.dev, and hit enter. And what you will be graced with is a site that has a little box, and you can type Ruby in the box. And you can hit bundle install, and it will install gems, Ruby libraries. And then you can hit execute, or whatever the other one is, because I'm not looking at it right now. I will look at it. Yeah, you will type, you will hit run code. That's the other button and it will run the code. And it might seem like this was okay, cool. It's, you know, I'm writing Ruby and I'm in a browser. Well, what's actually happening is this is the, the, the WASM web assembly interface 
or Wazi, I guess maybe we'd say. Uh, and that means that you can actually write and run Ruby code in your browser uh, and it's running all locally. It's not happening. It doesn't have to round trip to the cloud. It doesn't have to, you know, uh, if you, if you learned Ruby, uh, especially in the, like the late two thousands, early 2010s, you might've come across a website, um, try Ruby, which is still hosted, I believe at Ruby lang.org, uh, under like try, try Ruby dot. And it, it's a, like a little online tutorial. And as you fill it out, uh, as you, as you, as you run code, each time you execute, it takes the code, it pipes it up to a server in a sandbox environment, runs the Ruby there and then fetches the request, the, the response and, and the result. This is really running in your browser. And this is, you know, Aaron made a joke about uh, WebAssembly a few years ago. He said, uh, I want to make a true application that, you know, like an application the right way, which is uh, Ruby on the front end and then react on the back end, which is now a thing that you could literally do. Uh, so that's impressive. Uh, I, it's a toy, you know, this is just a demo. I think Mame-san might've made it. Um, so yeah, kudos to Mame. Uh, if nothing else, like he, he wrote the, the, the MERB, uh, uh, ah, yeah. I think somebody else is using some of Mame's code to, to, to make this particular website. Excuse me. So anyway, run ruby.dev. Pretty cool. Uh, try it out. If, if you're interested in, I, I'm very curious if WebAssembly will, uh, successfully, result in other languages than javascript being a go-to execution environment uh in browsers if you treat the browser as a runtime there's obviously there's a performance benefit, uh, um, cost there is an ecosystem cost because the ecosystem is obviously much smaller than javascript so naturally a subset but if you like a language other than javascript more than javascript it is appealing it is curious it is interesting so so some of this I like to keep an eye on it. It's been a long 10 years since we first kind of started thinking hard about WebAssembly being used to compile down other languages into running into a browser. And now we're, we're kind of there. I also, uh, in my newsletter this week, this month, I read a monthly newsletter. You can find it at justin.searles.co slash newsletter. Call it Searles of Wisdom. In my newsletter this month, I talked about a uh, an application that I've written for Becky, uh, my my aforementioned spouse. It's called Becky Graham. It's basically it's at graham.betterwithbecky.com. It's the first of several applications that I'm building for Becky, and it's basically it's a marketing site that looks just like Instagram. She can post uh, images, uh, videos, carousels, and they it looks like a little Instagram profile. It's got you know uh, a, a layout just like it. Uh, a custom carousel uh, widget that I, I feel like is good enough. Uh, it's snappy, it's responsive, it's all these things. And it comes with a CMS for her to upload and, and, and edit images. Uh, that's, you know, hopefully sufficient. And in addition, it uses my feed to gram uh, Ruby gem to syndicate all of the uh, posts that she writes there in from a, an Atom feed that is generated by the rails application uh, into Instagram posts. So, so this, this Ruby gem that is running continuously on our Synology down in, in the bonus room, uh, that checks once a day, uh, Hey, are there any new Becky Graham posts? And if there are, it will go through and upload them to Instagram. Uh, it's very Rube Goldberg. It's very silly, but it's a cool way to take ownership of your, her data 
you know, she's posting to this one place. She could syndicate elsewhere as well if she wanted to. And also, most importantly, for building a new um, SaaS product, the fact that she'll be able to insert interstitial CTA calls to action in, in, you know, cross link stuff to, you know, for marketing purposes to be able to like, you know, hey, encourage people to sign up for maybe she'll have an upcoming podcast or for her newsletter or whatever it is. Whereas like Instagram doesn't even allow you to include links and comments. The fitness industry lives in Instagram, so there's no way to escape it. But I wanted her to be able to have a first class experience that didn't require her to be glued to social media all day for the purposes of promoting her stuff. Uh, and I, and this seems like a good middle ground as, as well as something that can have a virtuous cycle by having, you know, um, other people potentially link to her website because websites on the internet and links still work. And that's really neat. Speaking of links, uh, Stripe link is a, I think it's the blessed way. Now, if you want to, if you want to accept payments on the internet via Stripe, the old and, uh, uh, crappy way of doing it apparently was just to use the API properly and like build your own interface and do all the form handling and maybe you don't store people's card information in your server, but you know, you got to somehow capture it to, to pipe it over to the API and then Stripe handles all the other kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't know how it worked because I've actually never had to build anything that did payment integration before directly. It was always somebody else's job or I was working on enterprise products where like, you know, if you wanted to buy the thing, it was, you had to, you know, sign a literal contract and then you were given access. So I have no experience I mean, this is an area where, you know, even, even novice programmers at, at, you know, direct to consumer web apps, um, probably have way more experience than me. So for the first time I was like, all right, well, hello, 2024, how do I let people pay me online? Stripe link seems to be the right, the correct current answer to this question. And so far I'm really, I was worried about taking payments. I was worried about the the flow. I was worried about conversion, all these things that, you know, like uh, keep, keep me up at night. Like just thinking of edge cases, it is, it is simpler. Like I, I, I carved out my whole morning for it and I spiked out a solution in about 15 minutes. <laughs> it is simpler than, um, like an OAuth, uh, login. Like if you were, if you wanted to implement like login with Facebook, you would need to do the three-step handshake, uh, first go and, you know, get some ty- type of token, attach that to a query parameter, uh, uh, s- redirect the user to the login page, redirect back from the login page, uh, uh, and, and do that handshake. Here is literally just start a session with the Stripe API, ask for the URL, redirect the user to that URL. They then get a Stripe link interface and kudos to Stripe. It is a very nice little, I mean, this form has one job, which is to suck money out of your wallets. And it seems to do it really well because, because in addition to, uh, having a card selector and Apple pay and, and all these different ways to, to get paid. If you've ever used Stripe link before for any other, uh, uh, vendor, then it'll remember your email address or your phone number. And if you're using a browser that allows, you know, like cookies to get stored, then it'll just, it's, it's almost one click. And so if you look at Stripe's marketing literature about why Stripe link is so great, they're like the conversion rates are through the roof and it's a free service for anyone who's a Stripe customer. And I don't think that it costs any more. I could be wrong about this. I don't think it costs any more from a, like a transaction cost perspective, but in fact, it stands to reason that 
Stripe is going to make more money with Stripe Link simply because, of course, they acquire more users uh, to Stripe, but also the users that they do have that use Stripe Link probably have more higher conversions. Higher conversions means more transactions. More transactions means more money for Stripe. So it's a, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle. Um, and you have aligned interests then between Stripe as the, as the payment processor and, and the applications trying to get money from people using Stripe. I, I'm very impressed. I, after after a month or two of fighting with Active Storage, the thing that I'm using to store images and videos in S3 for Becky Graham, among other things, uh, and how painful it's been, how buggy, how many bugs I've run into, how many bugs I've had to work around or fix myself uh, in Active Storage. I'm sure that I'm going to run into problems with Stripe. Don't get me wrong, but like to have such a pleasant first run experience that required me to read basically no documentation, uh, I'll take it. I'll take I'm I am quite pleased by 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 Stripe link so far and that's that's all I got uh <laughs> that's all my news items I guess it's not even a news item that's if you haven't seen it, it's new to me I guess uh recommendations for 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 this episode I don't think I've mentioned it but I'm I'm watching welcome to Rexham that's w-r-e-x ham the 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 town in the united kingdom uh welcome to rexham you know ryan reynolds and rob rob mackleback mackleback mackle mackle mackleback whatever i don't i never uh committed his last name to memory successfully because i didn't watch all of always sunny in philadelphia uh he's a very nice man don't get me wrong they bought uh you know a soccer team in rexham you may have heard of it uh they they even got mentioned in in one of the ted lasso episodes you know, while we're talking about Americans uh, dive bombing into UK tradition. Uh, so they bought a football club. There's uh, a lot of interesting stuff in the two, two now it's two seasons of documentaries um, on Hulu. And I've enjoyed it. I think it's, it's really interesting. Uh, it's very likable. It's really lifted up this city that was otherwise, you know, pretty depressed, I think. Uh, economically as well as morally with the, with the team that had suffered like 15 years of relegation. Uh, and I don't know, it's fun. So I mean, I'm enjoying that one. It's a nice slice of life show. It's, it's positive. It's, you know, kind of saccharine, I guess, but I, welcome to Rexham's a lot of fun. One of the things I noticed was I, I found my, found myself really actually caring about the outcomes in the, 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 the matches that were shown even though they, the, the, the match themselves happened a year ago, but because the stakes were so much higher because you'd just been listening to people talk about their feelings and how their feelings are all tied up with this particular team and you, and they, those, those personalities are effectively the characters in the show because you understand the stakes for them, for each individual win and loss by this team. I felt more skin in the game watching these, matches which are of course you know they are cut and edited to maximize the tension the dramatic tension as they unveil which is real sports is not that way uh even though i was ostensibly a lions fan watching the lions have the chance their only chance to get into the super bowl in my lifetime i i cared more about this random wrexham match a non-professional level uh, excuse me i the lowest level of professional whatever a a a not premier league team I was caring so much about like whether they beat this other no name team that I otherwise never would have heard of. Uh, and if it was able to make me care about that sport, uh, it must be pretty good. So welcome to Wrexham. 
you you win today's this episode's TV show of of the version. Uh, a uh, consumable recommendation. Becky really likes lemon drop cocktails, and there's just too much sugar in them for me. Uh, you know, whenever a simple syrup is involved, I usually try to find a way to sub it out for literally anything else, uh, including just removing it and allowing the cocktail to taste more bitter or alcoholy. Spirit forward. Uh, that's the fancy way to say alcoholy. Uh, and so I was thinking, well, if I have to buy all this Cointreau, and if I got to squeeze all these lemons anyway, I should just start making sidecars. Uh, so I've been making a lot of sidecars lately, which uh, if you if you never made a sidecar or, or had a sidecar, it's a simple recipe. It's it's Cointreau, you know, like uh, uh, like Lero Cointreau or, or you could probably use Grand Marnier. I would I would hope. Yeah, because Grand Marnier isn't that a it's a Cointreau, but a uh, um. Uh, I think it's got some brandy in it as well. And and that would pair well with the cognac, which is the other ingredient in addition to lemon juice. Uh, and yeah, you, you know, shake it up, pour it in a, in a coupe glass and you got, you got a party going. You can use some orange peel if you want, but I don't know. I, so, so hats off to sidecars. I'm, you know, I've been recording this for, for a little over an hour. I could go for a sidecar right now. And I, Hey, you know what? I'm home alone, damn it. And it's my day off. And it's not five o'clock yet, and I'm thinking about having fun. So, so look at me growing as a person. Uh, thanks, alcohol. All right. So while I'm while I'm feeling good, let's let's end on a high note. Let's uh, look at take a look at the mailbag. Uh, if you if you have a question, comment, just want to hear me say your name, or uh, you know you want to be part of part of the, the 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 movie magic of breaking change. Send me an email, podcast at sorrels.co. I am not so famous outside of Argentina that I will not read your email. But if you email me from Argentina, I'm sorry. It just, you know, it's tough being the, what is it, 14th most popular technology podcast in an entire nation. Uh, you know, I'm still trying to explain that. Maybe they don't get podcasts there. Maybe <laughs> maybe Apple's podcast directory isn't available in Argentina. And so it's just like a couple expats and that's all it takes. I don't, it's got to be something like that, right? So first email today is from Justin. He asks, what's your experience with AI in the context of coding? Have you used GitHub Copilot or other tools for your work? Yes. Yes and yes. I, I use AI in the context of coding all the time. Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, so at Testable, I, I have attracted curmudgeons. <laughs> And usually the curmudgeony streak is is healthy. And what I mean is I have defined my persona in public as being guy who complains about things sucking and occasionally pointing to slightly better ways of making things suck a little bit less. And from both a clientele and from a, a candidate perspective, a test double, because I've long been, you know, a major face of the company. Uh, a lot of people are, I think, appropriately critical and skeptical that each new fad is really going to deliver on its promise, that each worry of change, uh, big sweeping changes is going to really come to pass and have a, a, a small C conservative attitude around new stuff. And 
I can only speak for myself, but I'm learning to check that a little bit when it comes to changes that I can see and feel and guard against the, the, the risk that my own personal selfish uh, discomfort or fear of change isn't clouding what I consider to be my actual judgment. Take case in point, you know, I am very, I, I was always, I, I heard about crypto and Bitcoin and all that. And I laughed at it and I was like, this seems like, you know, bullshit to facilitate Russian money laundering was my first reaction to Bitcoin. And, I, and it was relatively early on. And then I heard about NFTs and this sounds like to me, it's like, this sounds like a bullshit way to monetize, you know, nothing like to sell, you know, basically it's like a star registry was the first analogy that came to my head when I heard about NFTs. It's like, you're buying somebody a star, but like, it only matters if the registry is authoritative. And it turns out that when you buy somebody, the naming rights to a star, uh, there is no such authoritative registry. There's in fact, multiple competing ones. So I, uh, I was really sour for what I believe to be rational reasons on crypto from day one. But ChatGPT comes out and you see people using it, whether it's right or wrong, they're using it. And you see flashes of utility there. And you also, like at least I, can imagine ways that it be made more powerful and more useful over time. It was hard for me to just look at AI in the context of productivity and say, like, this is going to be useless or this is, you know, I, a thing that I would hear dismissively often, even by colleagues is like, well, this is just a statistical model of, you know, that, that, that is predicting what the next word is. And my reaction to that was like, so is the human brain. <laughs> I'm just, you know, that, that's what consciousness is. I, I am thinking up thoughts and then those are leading to the next thoughts by predicting based on context, you know, what should the next word out of my mouth be? And here I am talking into a microphone and, and I'm, I am my own AI Ouroboros of the snake eating its tail as I describe the process of new thoughts getting created behind the train tracks of the old thoughts getting laid down, uh, which is a little bit meta, sure. But just because it's a statistical model doesn't mean it's not necessarily useful. And just because it all boils down to math, it's true it's absolutely true that doesn't give it a soul. It doesn't give it personhood. It doesn't make it real. It doesn't make it, uh, you know, sentient. Whatever the definition of artificial general AI is, it's kind of beside the point. If what we're actually talking about is, are these tools useful enough to displace other people doing these tasks or simplify people doing tasks that used to take them more effort? And, are there, if the answer to that is yes, you're still allowed to be unsettled by it. <laughs> you know, I talked about labor implications earlier. Uh, you're also still allowed to uh, point to the fact that, hey, pre-2022, everything on the internet was written by humans. And post-2022, I have a strong suspicion that a majority of content is going to be written by programs. Uh, and and if we train the the, the programs, uh, you know, it's the movie Multiplicity, right? With uh, Michael Keaton cloning himself and the clone of a clone not being as smart. So I get it. I I decided I made a, a strategic decision on my own part. I was going to jump two feet in, and I was going to install every single AI thing. I, I've tried to rewind AI. We talked about that in an earlier episode of the podcast. 
Uh, I've been using Copilot. I've been using all the AI tools. I'll try anything once. I mean, I tried AI tools to create a jingle for this podcast, and those are not good yet. So I paid a human to make the podcast jingle. But you, I can guarantee you, if I could have made as good of a jingle with AI, I would have done it. Sorry, Riley. Although, Riley, your jingle is excellent. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Uh, so, yes. Short answer Short answer is yes. I, I use Copilot. My understanding is that Copilot is on a custom blend. It's got, you know, the, the Arabica coffee bean that go into the, the GPUs in Azure is some blend of models based on context, I think. I don't know that for sure, but that's my sense of how Copilot seems to work. It's, you know, they don't market it as you're getting this GPT model because Copilot is its own product. And so, yes, I use GitHub Copilot. It, um, it is helpful sometimes. It, it, you know, the ways in which it fails is, are frustrating enough that I don't necessarily, you know, we jokingly in the early days of AI, the early days of November 2022, we don't really talk about, uh, we used to talk about it as like spicy autocomplete. And there's an aspect to to that that Copilot still has the the chat feature the um, the thing the thing that I think shows the most promise for Copilot is if you hit Command I in VS Code it brings the inline chat and I love to select a little block of text and I run the inline chat and I'm like I'll give it instructions like change this method from this to this you know shorten this come up with like like optimize this and once in a while I'll see brilliance. But too often it will um, introduce, a, it'll suggest a change set that would like duplicate half the file inside of the file if I were to accept it. And that just is like that kind of bugginess. Like, like so then I accept it. Now I've got like, you know, syntax errors. It seems to me that if Copilot lives in your editor, which for the most part it does, especially because VS Code is sort of the first class GitHub Copilot platform, and it makes a suggestion before the user sees the suggestion, it seems to me like it could um, check its work by seeing like, oh, this suggestion that I just made causes a syntax error. And like a pro, like, 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 like pro- prospectively, you could run whatever linters are currently configured for that file type and be like, ah, yes, like this creates problems. Maybe this is not a working solution. You know, it'll, it'll very often fuck things up like the number of parentheses uh, or the number of uh, levels of indentation in a block and those little things just you know they grate on me at that point if you can't get the semantic structure of the code correct because you're just kind of a dumb language model then at that point what's what's the reason for using copilot in the context of the editor anyway and so what i've fallen back on doing is because i pay for gpt plus uh so that i know what model i'm in and so that i it can stick and, and remember some stuff about me uh, I have been doing a lot more of using uh, AI only to spike things out that I don't know how to do. For example, I talked about Stripe Link earlier. I said, look, I want to use Stripe Link, write the code I need to go and get the redirect URL and then tell me what I would do afterwards, right? It just gave me that. I pasted that into a Rails console and then it just worked. That I have found to be far more effective and I spend less time cleaning up after the AI uh, and also more time using it for what it's probably best at, which is give me mainstream advice of what normal people do 
for, for, for workflows and for activities that I'm not intimately familiar with. Because when I'm in my editor and I'm in a piece of code and I see a particular error or something's not working right, the, the, no LLM is going to know the particularities of what I'm looking at better than me if I'm already kind of an expert. And I hate to say that I'm an expert, but like I know a lot of stuff very specifically that very few other people know. And if you were to line up a hundred other programmers, I might know more than 98 of them on, on, you know, how certain things work. And if these things are trained on sort of the masses on stack overflow and Reddit, then even it's best, even if it were able to successfully identify the exact situation that I was in, where I'm like, I don't know how to make this work it would still kind of pump out a, a very, it doesn't have the discrimination to know to ignore the low quality content that it was trained on and only select the high quality content it was trained on because it's not, there's not a reinforcement mechanism like there would be if you were using AI to play a video game and there was some number. It was, it was min maxing to try to like optimize a score. If it, if it was, all of these questions were going into a machine and like the ones that performed well would get positively reinforced and the bad code examples would get negatively reinforced. Then I would probably have a higher hit rate. But as it is, when I'm in a super specific context in an area where I'm actually already pretty familiar and I'm like, I need to know what this very, like, you know, this gnarly rails thing for this version, like what's happening, it'll give me advice that almost always hallucinates up. Oh, to do that, just set this flag or set this keyword argument. And then I'll do it. And then they'll like, be like that never existed. Uh, or maybe it existed once in a PR that didn't get merged. So I'm, I think LLMs are really, really good for surveying new topics, for trying new things, for asking for boilerplate, like for example, Hey, I just ran into this very particular issue. This was the fix that I wrote, like, and this is how I made it work Write for me, a GitHub issue that would like explain all this. And it'll write the couple of paragraphs and save me the drudgery of having to actually back up and take my solution and like, and, and, and contextualize it for people. And that I find that actually to be pretty effective. So that's, that's pretty much what I use it for now. So thanks for the question, Justin, do you use copilot follow up? I'd actually love uh, anyone here listening, uh, their thoughts on using AI every day. I'd love to hear some stories about it failing spectacularly or working really well. So, so hit me up podcast at surreals.co. Next question comes from Liz. Liz says, I've only been writing rails for a couple of years. Once I could write rail, ra- once I could write rails quickly and conform reasonably well to generally best general best coding practices, uh, Liz, I am sorry for just butchering this uh, as I try to read words on a page. I started feeling like it would be easy to get comfortable here. It's easy to ignore linters, test helpers, and writing particularly Railsy code. But I want to know, I'm also screwing up the inflection of how you're trying to communicate this, Liz. I am very sorry. I think uh, uh, on the podcast host qualifications on the job posting on indeed.com that I replied to, to that I applied to, 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 to have this job, uh, I may have skipped over the bullet point of can read words good. But I want to know how I move from okay 
Rails to writing Rails so well that it simplifies other developers' lives in ways that they didn't realize could be simplified. It could be simplified. I've noticed that test doublers, uh, that is to say uh, double agents, uh, the consultants that work at test double. So Liz has had an experience of working with another test double agent before. I've noticed that test doublers do this. How can I continue improving so I don't stay stagnant at working and okay, but rather, you know, now this is me editorializing, uh, you know, how do I break out a second gear, so to speak, and open up the throttle, so to speak, and other car analogy, so on and so forth. You know, what's that Vince Lombardi quote? Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. I think there is something to be said. And my advice when somebody says, hey, I want to get back into programming is think of something that you really, really want badly to create or otherwise decide on a thing that you really will will move heaven and earth to build. Whether you care that much or not, force yourself to care. And then just stick your head to the grind, nose to the grindstone and just work your ass off and make it real. Like that's my general programming advice. And if you force yourself to overcome all of these obstacles and you come out the other end, you can't have help. You can't help yourself, but to have learned a lot. So that's, you know, the best advice I can give in general in getting started with programming or getting engaged. This is a little different. This is. I'm probably programming a lot. I'm at work. I'm doing a lot of programming, but I, maybe it's not my full-time hobby. Maybe I don't spend a lot of time reading about like the latest and greatest, and maybe that doesn't interest me. And, and that would be fair. I don't, I don't find that stuff particularly engaging either. What I have found, you know, and this is something in the um, early, the proto agile days of the mid two thousands, you know, uh, we called them code katas at one point, but Doing intentional practice. We had all, you know, Corey Haynes had the code retreat, uh, uh, pseudo business uh, where, where like you, you would, you would implement Conway's game of life and then you'd rotate pairs and you'd throw away your code after every session and the, and, and you'd practice test driven development often. Like the idea of solving problems with no intention, no utility in mind outside the context of work to, to accomplish nothing but but the iron sharpens iron aspect of trying to code it a little bit better, trying to come up with a data model to a really thorny problem that is that somehow better encapsulates it than what you would have done if you just sort of followed the established patterns that are comfortable to you. Uh, or maybe using um, more uh abstract more layers of abstraction but also more specific kinds of abstraction you know like rather than uh using booleans to model stuff maybe you you practice trying to use a more descriptive edum uh, uh you know with with different labels and so forth it could be uh any number of tactics that you might sit and just make spend 30 minutes saying I'm going to do, and, and I would encourage uh, you Liz or, or anyone interested in this to go and look up some code katas, or we used to have a thing called Ruby quiz. And these are really old, but like the nice thing about these is that like the problems never really change. Uh, and challenge yourself to, to, to implement them and maybe implement them a few times. Maybe this week I do it once and then next, next week or two weeks from now I'll do it again. And then two weeks later I'll do it again. And each time try to do it better somehow. 
and set the bar really, really high for yourself, almost to the level of perfect. You know, at work, we can't be perfectionists. We have to be pragmatists. Somebody else is paying for this code. And if we really tried to perfect every single little thing that we did, we wouldn't be productive enough. And eventually our customers or our employers would grow tired of that perfectionism. And so it is an adaptive trait to be highly pragmatic at work. But if you take time for your own practice to level up, now you can actually practice perfectionism. You can set the bar higher. And when you do that for yourself, and this is something that I, as a sort of natural perfectionist, uh, the reason that I spent so much time, the impetus, the motivation for me to have spent so much time doing open source and coding on my own is because the constraints of the workplace are too limiting for me. I would rather, you know, because they got deadlines, they got other people's interests. You know, I've got to collaborate with other people. I'm chasing after the platonic form of code, of domain modeling, and I can't help it. I've got an illness, and I'm just on a path to discover that thing. Give yourself that illness somehow. And one way to do it might be, you know, uh, the, the tennis scoring kata of like, you know, writing, writing a couple functions that score a game of tennis, you know, and, and how, how might you structure the code differently? And then on an integration level, like higher order stuff, there might be other ways to practice different patterns of code use, you know, and people who care about this, they often end up in like relatively, um, overwrought designs where there's too much indirection or there's sort of, you know, uh, uh, an irrational exuberance around, for example, like pattern language and trying to, you know, oh, I'm going to use a factory to, to create an abstract interface to these adapters that will then go and plug into this. And to anyone else, it just looks like nonsense. You got to measure your, you got to calibrate what you're really solving for. And so I would think, and and you kind of called one out here, Liz, I would think about writing code so well that it simplifies other developers lives in ways they didn't realize could be simplified. I would start with an example of what you mean there that you experienced and work backwards. How, how did, how did you find yourself introduced to that solution? Perhaps by somebody else, what was the root cause pain point that was solved by that solution? And what other pain points that you're familiar with look like that pain point and then pick some of those and say, Hey, I have this pain point or I have this, 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 this complexity that I, that smells wrong to me. Maybe you just go and spend a little bit of time and you you branch off and you, you delete it and you take different stabs at it and you just sort of see other ways that you could arrive at a workable solution that are different than what you're used to. This is actually weirdly, a case where GPT is pretty good. You can paste some code and be like, this doesn't smell right to me. I think it doesn't smell right for these reasons. What are just some simpler approaches to solve this problem? And you you might be surprised at how good it can be at, at critiquing code, especially if you prompt it to say, hey, you're a, you know, a, a, a principal developer and, and, and it's your job to do this kind of code review to help other people get better. Uh, so that, that would be my suggestion, Liz. Thanks for the question and good luck in your journey. All right. My throat's starting to go. We're, we're coming up on two hours. One more question. Uh, this is from Kathy. Kathy asks your favorite dark AF movies. Now this is, um, this is a family podcast, so I can't say dark as fuck movies. All right. Uh, (laughs) uh, at one point, uh, uh, Kathy and I in real life were discussing 
the books I was reading in Japanese. And she recommended a novelist named Murakami, and I did not know his name. But then I, she started describing his, how dark his novels were, like, like thematically dark, um, not like gray on black text dark. And uh, uh, I realized that sounds a lot like this movie called Drive My Car. And if you've never seen Drive My Car, it is a dark movie. It is very good. It was a, a film of the year in Japan. I don't think it was nominated for an Oscar per se, but it was probably the biggest breakout film from the Japanese film industry uh, in a long time. Uh, uh I loved it. It was really, really good. It was super thought-provoking. Oh, it won an Oscar. Never mind. Look at that. Oscar winning. Uh, probably probably in some foreign film category. Clicking the link is not resulting in what I want. Um, also, uh, Nishijima Hidetoshi, Hide, Hidetoshi is one of my favorite actors. Uh, he's a really, really good uh, empathetic actor. He's uh, in a... Um, uh, a drama series in Japan that I really like called uh, uh, oh, it's been a while since I watched it. Kino Tabita, like what did you eat last night? Uh, or he's a, uh, in a closeted gay couple in a not particularly like, you know, um, gay friendly culture uh, as a lawyer married to a, uh, uh, or partnered with a, a, a guy who, who, who cuts hair in a salon uh yeah anyway back to the topic which is drive my car which is a really fucking dark movie it's uh, it, it deals with themes like um how 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 you as a human you really get into inside this guy's head it's, it's beautifully shot because it really makes you feel like this fella um how you deal with the soul crushing experience of infidelity uh inside the context of a marriage death um and 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 how you'd overcome it uh, health issues and it's really just, it's, it, as a Western moviegoer, in addition to just being dark, the arc of it would feel unsatisfying to people used to big blockbusters because it's, the story is kind of the story and we're left to, to grapple with the themes, but it doesn't follow a save the cat <laughs> three act play of, and then at the end, everything is resolved. It's just you know, things are shitty. And then like, you know, there's a different way to look at the shitty thing at the end, you know, that kind of, that kind of movie. So, uh, I'm going to read the rest of Kathy's email because she was so kind as to include, uh, pronunciation guides for me, knowing that I would need them. <laughs> uh, that led us both to realize we appreciate the subgenre of dark AF, uh, which stands for as fuck by the way, but beautiful books and movies. <laughs> And I started thinking of some of my favorite movies from Christoph Kijlovsky, which is a name I would not have been able to pronounce without that parenthetical. Thank you. Or uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet and Peter Greenaway. Uh, Peter did not have a, a pronunciation guide, but I, I hope I got that right. What are your favorite dark AF uh, uh, but beautiful movies? Whew. I, you know, there's a handful, uh, cloud Atlas comes to mind. I really love the movie cloud Atlas. I realize it's not necessarily a good film. <laughs> there's a lot of problems. There's like a yellow face problem. There's a, there it's a weird fucking movie, but I like, I thematically really like it. 
and I really love the soundtrack. Um, yeah, there's something about Cloud Atlas and having a handful of people experience the same rhythm of existence over and over and over again in different eras uh, that sort of ties together the human experience that I like a lot, even though, you know, uh, spoiler alert, life ends with death every time, no matter what we try to do. Uh, so yeah, Cloud Atlas, I love a lot. I, you know, it, if you hated that movie, you've got every reason to, but uh, I'm probably due to rewatch it. Um, another one that comes to mind is uh, Synecdoche, New York, which is uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a playwright who gets a, I think he gets a MacArthur grant, gets a big pile of money, and he has this really broken, sad author life and does the most sad author thing you could do and makes a play about his own life. And then the play is because it's meta, the play is happening inside of a play inside of a play. And so he's playing himself. And then like in the play comes, has to like, you know, create the next, what is uh, in black mirror when they had this sort of quantum uh, Netflix show, they called it like fictive level two. So then there's like an actor playing him and he's directing the actor playing him that he's not doing good enough, you know? And like, so like, there, the 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 layered complexity in the the, the theme and the, the just the narrative, just keeping the story straight and understanding like what layer am I operating in right now while watching the film is challenging. But Philip Seymour Hoffman turned in what I think is his best performance uh, and really made me so sad when he passed away. Uh, not not that I want a sequel because that movie is so fucking dark. Uh, but yeah, that one's really good. Another one I like a lot is I really, you know, movies that another movie that like you'd have every reason to hate uh, and which was a, um, you know, critical and commercial failure. As far as I know, uh, I really enjoyed Vanilla Sky. I thought Vanilla Sky was a really thought provoking film. Um, Thinking about transhumanism, what it would be like to get uploaded into the cloud or have some sort of like, you know, eternal, it was the first film that really forced me to think about, uh, life extension artificially, you know, getting put on ice and having your cognizant, you know, your, your conscience go and exist in some, some playground and then maybe be slurped back down to earth and what you would dream in that time. Um, so, so, uh, boy, Spoiler alerts for Vanilla Sky, but I, I, I feel like the statute of spoiler limitations is up on that one. Uh, uh, if you just thought that was a stupid movie of Tom Cruise running down an empty, uh, you know, uh, Fifth Avenue, it is also that. <laughs> but it, man, yeah, it goes places. It's really, really, I think it's worth watching. Uh, if you don't like it, sorry. The only other one I think of, uh, and this is a real standard answer. I'm sure a lot of people would probably come to mind when they think of like just really dark AF movies is Requiem for a Dream. Uh, and I only mentioned Requiem because uh, also a good soundtrack, but I saw, I was way too young when I saw that movie, uh, and which is to say I was under the age of 75 years old. <laughs> I'm still fucking scarred from that movie. Uh, uh, but, I, you know, for whatever reason, I really like Aronofsky's style. Darren Aronofsky, uh, he's, he, there's some, he communicates in film in a way that is, um, 80% enjoyable and, and tactile and 20% like discordant dissonant and unsettling. Uh, like the wrestler, I think is like not a good movie. I really didn't like it, but like it, it, it just tonally 
scratched something um, for me someplace. <laughs> Ugh. Um, another one of his that I like is The Fountain, which is a sort of similar like plot beats of your life kind of kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I got. Ah, oh, man, it's uh, here. I am over two hours again. Uh, people keep telling me to make these shorter. I presumably, I mean, if you're still listening, you're not one of them. Or if you are, you know, that's on you. Uh, I'm just, I'm just here doing my thing. So thank you, everyone. Uh, I look forward to talking to you next time, whenever version six rolls around. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, would love to see an email, let you know. I'll, I would love to hear from you so that I could feel slightly less alone as I enjoy my, 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 my weekend to myself while I make a sidecar and watch a dark as fuck movie. Bye.